Today on Catfish Best Source, we follow up from a show from last year that was very informational. We bring back once again Minnesota DNR biologist Nick Clute to follow up on all the projects that they were going to be doing in the 2022 season. From the studios of Grand Fork's Best Source, welcome to Grand Fork... Already screwed it up. Welcome to Catfish Best Source, presented by Half Brothers Brewing. I'm your host, Brad Durek. Joined by producer Dale, as always. A couple of quick reminders. Be sure to sign up for round two of our Super Clean contest, where you could win a sample pack of Super Clean mailed right to your door. Simply go over to the Brad Durek Outdoors Facebook page. Find that Super Clean logo at the top. Looks just like the one on the screen. Share that bad boy. Go into the comments section of my page and type in the keyword catfish. You will automatically be entered. Tonight's Half Brothers Brewing sample is a a new one. Came out. I've already tried it. I cheated. Is uh, Nomosa. This one's pretty darn cool. It's uh, non-alcoholic sour ale in tangerine flavor. And I've been looking forward to this all day. I could have brought you one, Dale. It's too bad because you got to work tonight. You could have had a non-alcoholic one. Oh, God. Next time. Next time. <laughs> oh, I've been looking forward to this all day, and it doesn't have any alcohol. Speaking of Half Brothers, as you already know, tonight I'm having a taste of Nomosa from our friends at, and presentation sponsors at Half Brothers Brewing. These guys are awesome at making beer. They have me enjoying many brews that I thought I didn't much care for before. I find myself enjoying IPAs and sours. I still love the classics, such as the Classic and Nodak 23. There's another one in there that I'm really starting to like, which is Lumberjack Snack. There's so many more. They come and they go as they make different ones each week. And and I can't even remember offhand what they all have. They have the standards, like I mentioned, but they've got some awesome ones coming up as well. Like them on social media and get the lowdown on everything that's new over at Half Brothers Brewing. I want to tell you about their tap room downtown as well on North 3rd Street. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Grand Forks, head down to the tap room. Have one of the many beers on tap that I've already mentioned. And be sure to hang out with your friends. Bring the family. Kids are welcome at Half Brothers. Enjoy their pizza. I tell you, I was in there yesterday, and they were bringing out their single-slice pizza, and I think I've had pizzas that are smaller than their slices. They also have pizza rolls, nachos, and the pretzel bites are my absolute favorite. You will not regret it. Check them out on the web, halfbrothersbrewing.com, or simply stop at the tap room on North 3rd Street in Grand Forks. Tell them Captain Brad sent you. Dale, I believe you got a message for us from our friends at Muskox. Man with two spots. Yeah, yeah, bouncing around. Yeah, I want to tell everyone about our friends at Muskox Snowblowers, where if you move snow with a skid steer, well, you must see the Muskox difference. It's a patented back drag feature that allows operators to blow snow while back dragging in front of obstructions like garage doors, siding, and fire hydrants. It saves time and money while lowering injury risk by decreasing manual labor. The optional dual auger, called the dually, helps the operator eat through big snowfalls, ice-crusted snow, and blow more snow while back-dragging. You can see it going in the video right behind us, too. It's their patented technology. The glide plate allows you to glide over grass and gravel without ripping up the soft surfaces. Subsequently, it creates an instant torque on the lower cutting edge to break up snow and ice to better expose hard surfaces. 
see the Muscox difference, go to their website at muscoxmn.com or their Facebook at Muscox Snowblowers, or you can call them up at 218-288-1905. Muscox, see the difference for yourself. And they are having a busy year, I hope, and they also are looking for dealer inquiries, so be sure to look up Muscox. Well, now, without further ado, I've already mentioned, we're returning to a topic we had last year. I'd like to welcome to the show from the Minnesota DNR biologist, Nick Clute. Welcome aboard, sir. I know that was a long wait for all this. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Glad to be here. It's fun to hang out. So you've been... uh, uh, busy guy in the last year because last year when I had you on the show you had this whole big long list of things that you were gonna gonna do in this off season or in the during the season of 2022 how did it all go did you get through the whole list yeah we made her through uh, and we even added a few things so uh, hard at work we'll say well uh, I'm glad you did it because there's a lot of exciting things and one in particular isn't done yet that I want, which is the Creel survey, but you did do the 2022 Red River survey that I believe was supposed to have been done in 2020, but got postponed for obvious reasons. So let's just jump in and just lay it on us what you guys found out. All right. Well, in a nutshell, uh, the Red River cat fishery is in great shape. Um, that should come as no surprise to a lot of our anglers who are out there on a consistent basis, you among them, but things are going awfully well out there. Uh, we got out a little later this spring than we initially anticipated. Something um, about flooding. Because of the high water. Um, but once we did get on there, boy, uh, catch rates were through the roof. So, typically, when we are out, um, we are assessing the number of fish we catch with a metric that you probably see in a lot of our reports, CPUE, uh, catch per unit effort. So what that is, is how many fish, on average, we get per net lift. Um, In 2015, up in the Wapaton area, we were averaging 40.3 channel cats per net lift. Uh, This year, we averaged 153. Um, Kind of up in your neck of the woods, around the Grand Forks area, you'd expect about 8.3 per lift, or excuse me, two per lift. Uh, We quadrupled it up to 8.3. There's a little ghost in the data there in terms of how our nets fish efficiency-wise in the upper river versus the lower river. It just has to do with the slope of that bank as it comes in. Uh, But across the board, catch rates were up triple or quadruple uh, in a lot of cases. Let me stop you right here because we have a lot of listeners that are not from here. So you're saying up and down. And we Ah, have to point out that Wahpeton is in southern North Dakota and it's at the headwaters of the Bois de Sioux and the Otter Tail, and and then it flows downstream into Canada, which is up north. So I just wanted to clarify that for the people who are not Red River regulars. (laughs) You know, that's a great point. Uh, Those of us who are kind of the Red River Rat Brigade here, totally natural to us, but uh, within North America, kind of a unique situation that the further north you go, the further down the river you are. Yeah, and I get it a lot. I mean, you get the people from Iowa and down south, and they're sitting there watching the rear of the boat facing north, going, what the hell is wrong? 
because it just <laughs> they just can't fathom. It's like ah, you get used to it after a while. Don't worry about it. Yeah, sure. All right. Okay, go so on. I just fun. wanted to clarify that for the listeners. <laughs> oh, you bet. You bet. Okay, so that's our catch rates. Um, that's great news because in a lot of cases, when you have that density of fish, you're going to see a little higher catch rate for the anglers. Um, it also lets us know based on size distribution of the fish we catch, what we have in terms of year classes that are coming up. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, but first, we're going to get to another metric that you're commonly going to see uh, in fisheries reports. And this is a little guy that's abbreviated PSD24. And for the Red River of the North, we really need to understand PSD24 because this is how we manage the system. So what that is, is if we take the entire size structure of sampled fish of the Red River, at a certain point, those fish are going to become vulnerable to the fishery. They're recruited to the fishery. We call that stock size. I told you there'd be math. Then <laughs> once we hit 24 inches, that's where the 24 comes from. So PSD 24 refers to fish that are stock size and larger, the portion of those that are over 24 inches. So the fraction that's over 24 inches of fish anglers would be interested in is PSD 24. We track through time PSD 24 on the Red River to keep track of our trophy size structure. And in Reach One Site One, so that would be the whole Wapaton area, um, in the upper river, uh, PSD 24 uh, in 2015 was three, in 2022 was five. Uh, so that's 5% of the fish that would be interesting to an angler are over 24 inches. Um, so that's part of the fishery is in awfully good shape. As we move down river, uh, we encountered a little bit of an interesting problem. Uh, with the higher flow and us getting on the water a little later this year, we ran into the channel cats starting to spawn. Now, this would have been in that time period where I was talking to you before, I believe it was the Shields Boundary Battle. Yeah, I remember that week very well. Yeah, and it was tough going. Uh, so PSD 24 in the Fargo area, normally that's going to hover around 10, or excuse me, 9. Um, this time around, it was 2. That's not hugely concerning to us because we knew that there's a ghost in the system there. Those fish have started spawning and therefore we are probably not gonna see a lot of those big mature females. Now, obviously for monitoring purposes, we sure would have liked to have seen them, uh, but sometimes you take what the river gives you. We saw a similar thing going on up in the Grand Forks area. However, up there, because we also soak trot lines, which deliberately target the larger fish, uh, we were able to get after them a little better. Um, in 2015, catch rate of fish over 24 inches was 1.4 per line. Uh, this year it was 0.5, so not terrible. Uh, those fish are still present. You guys were definitely seeing them. Uh, the Fargo and the Grand Forks reaches were sampled on the same week. 
we had that kind of depressed catch rate of those larger fish, then the day we stopped sampling because we got our sites done, uh, a huge thunderstorm system came through, if you'll recall. I was trapped in shields trying to have a boundary battle meeting. (laughs) (laughs) And the heavens opened. We had just torrential rain. And all of a sudden, we get a big slug of water coming down the Red River. We see the hydrograph bump up a little bit flow-wise. We see temperature, which had been edging into the upper 70s, take about an eight-degree dip. It snapped those fish over back into kind of that pre-spawn mode. And as I recall, you guys had just a lights-out tournament. Would you like me to just step in here and talk about that for one second? Absolutely. We were wondering if we were going to get 50 to 50 pounds of fish over two days to win that tournament going in. Because the previous Wednesday at Catfish League, we set an all-time low in fish weight and weight. We were weighing fish Saturday at 7.15 a.m., and by the end of the day, we only had two of our 50 boats out, and they were just looking for a slot fish because they couldn't get anything small enough. That's how fast it turned on. That being said, our tournament record prior to 2022 was 72.6 or some change anyway. One team had ever broke 70 pounds, and it was in 2016. That same yep. team had 70 pounds this year and didn't catch, cash a check because we had that many teams in the 70 pounds with six fish. Mind you, we have the slot limit, so two of those six had to be under 24 inches. So it was uh, yeah. it was stunning. And then I can go on a step further. As soon as that tournament got over, I went right back into my busy guiding schedule and just absolutely pounded them the next week. So the next Wednesday at Catfish League, we broke the all-time record for fish weighed and weight of the league in its 20 years. So in two weeks, we had the lowest and the best. So that was yeah. a big changeover. And, you know, ideally, uh, with our standard sampling, we'd have been able to capture that. But, you know, sometimes you just have to take what the river gives you. There's one thing you didn't mention in there in the statistics, though, which was we were both <laughs> talking about is that water was still coming down pretty darn fast. And right about that week, it yeah. flattened out. Or right about those days, it started to flatten out. Do I believe the storm played something in there? Absolutely, I think that storm played something in there. But it was also that time where it's going to turn any day now if the spawn isn't too heavy. Yeah, and you're talking that flow coming down and finally leveling. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, that allows those fish to set up a little more consistent pattern, as you well know, and it just eases the angling. Pattern didn't matter when that turned on. (laughs) Okay, maybe a little, but not much. Yeah, well, when your winning bag for a two-day tournament is, what, 75.2? Yeah. I mean, that's a stout bag. Yeah, I mean, the other tournament in town with a a 10-fish limit, you know, they get into the low 80s. With 10 fish. We did it with six. That's how good it was. Yeah. So uh, that uh, that was kind of the story of the nets. Um, 
Then we got up into the more northerly reach. Uh, that would be up in that uh, Pemina area or Halleck area if you're going off of Minnesota geography. And up there, you know, when we look at our PSD 24s from the trot lines uh, in the Grand Forks area, you're looking at about a PSD 24 of anywhere from 17 to the mid 40s. Up there, um, 49 is what we scored. Uh, and in previous years, it was a 46. So the size structure is holding steady. Catch rates are way up. Um, and that's partially flow dependent, I think, um, when the water's pushing a little harder like it was this year, you know, those nets create a little bit more of a current seam, and that gets you a little more of an attraction to that gear. Uh, so, you know, all things considered, things are looking good, but we dealt with some environmental stuff. I wouldn't know about running any of that gear. It's illegal for me. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> That's real good of you. Yes. Uh, um, so uh, if you're done with that part, um, well, you already kind of covered it all, I guess, looking at your, um, are you done with the catfish or we want to move on to walleyes quick? You know, let's finish up uh, catfish and let's talk a little bit about catfish recruitment here. Okay. Um. So recruitment uh, in the biology world is a fish that spawns. We then have egg, larva, juvenile, up to sexually mature and spawning. So you have to go through that whole process before that fish is said to have recruited. And the way we look at recruitment um, is using some mathematical modeling based on the number of fish of certain ages that we catch within the fishery. And once we get those uh, models set up, there's kind of the holy grail of uh, patterns that will emerge. There's a guy by the name of Bill Ricker. He wrote the Bible on quantitative fisheries analysis. He worked out in British Columbia. Uh, and he described a particular pattern of oscillatory residuals, and we do not need to go down the math hole of what that means, but this particular pattern, when you see it in your model, it looks just like a wavelength. And what that's telling you is you have exceptionally stable recruitment in a given system. It's really hard to find that pattern because typically within fisheries, you have a really good year class, a few smaller ones, a really good one, and it just kind of goes with the weather or some driving influence on a given fishery. Within the Red River cat fishery, uh, in 2015 and now again in 2022, we've kind of found this holy grail pattern of uh, oscillation. And that's really good news for the fishery because that means year in and year out, we're producing good year classes. Some are gonna be a little up, some are gonna be a little low, but on the whole, we're gonna be about straight down the flight path with consistent natural reproduction. So that was A, really fun to see because as you know, I get very excited about these things. And then B, uh, just 
how rare that is to find that exact textbook pattern. But yet again, here in the Red River, we find something spectacular. Well, I think it's very exciting. And, you know, just from <clears throat> catching the last couple of years, I think it's very accurate because we are catching a lot of little fish, a lot of middle fish, and a lot of big fish. And, you know, my customers never want to see a little fish, but, I mean, you get that occasional 9, 10-incher. It's like, that's good. That means they're doing their thing. Yeah, and the amount of those uh, 9 to 11-inch fish uh, that we caught in this year's survey uh, is incredible. We had some nets that had 500 in one net. Oh, that's awesome to hear. How long does it, do you think it takes to get them that big? Uh, to get them that big? Well, a 20-inch fish is about a 10-year-old uh, in the Red River. So if we're looking at something about within that 11-inch range, I'm going to go with something on the order of probably about five years old. So they've uh, already dealt with quite a bit in the old uh, survival mode. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's all the more remarkable when you think about how many fish you lose to natural mortality each year. Over 95% of your fish eggs are going to die. Over 95% of your larval fish are going to die. And your juvenile fish are going to have a really steep mortality rate too, just kind of depending on where they're at. But if you say 10% survive, that's a pretty good survival rate. Right. And that just tells you how many big fish we have spawning when we actually do go to the spawn. Yeah, uh, we just have an incredible catfish biomass in the Red River is what it boils down to. You know, I want to point it out, and I don't know if you guys ever figured it out, but we had that huge die-off last year. And I've never seen a die-off of that magnitude where the fishing never really shut off. It, it was like it didn't even affect anything. I mean, I've seen a worse die-off in 2007, but there was a couple weeks there where you knew things were happening. And I think a lot of it was... Uh, stress from spawn and you know obviously something might have happened on the upper reaches but i've never seen that many large fish on a die-off and have the bite not even slow down yeah and you know that was one of those uh kind of extra activities on the work plan um i know you guys up there were instrumental in helping us get some samples uh of those fish um and for your listeners who don't know uh we had a disease issue this year on the Red River with our channel cats. Uh, it only seemed to affect large individuals, which was interesting. And the sores uh, that we saw were very similar to what we'd seen previously. Um, I believe, was it in 07? 07, yep. Yep, I yep, was part of that one, too. We had a Calamneris outbreak yep. up here. I knew right what it was when I saw it. Because I've seen yeah. that one other time. Yep. And, you know, we had uh, that protracted spawn this year. Part of that was because of the high flows. Water temps didn't get right until late. Then we had a couple kind of oscillations in temperature. It triggered spawning, shut it off, triggered it, shut it off. And as it drew out, we got into warmer and warmer water temps. Uh, we had those fish getting beat up during the spawn a little bit, uh, saw some puncture marks, that sort of thing. And then, you know, we had this disease issue. You know, thankfully, it appeared to uh, leave us fairly quickly. 
And, you know, time will tell if it had any real impact on the population. I think more than anything, just because it was larger fish, we were able to see them on the surface, and that's why it maybe looked severe. I told you I didn't get too concerned about it till the last week. And a lot of folks, I've seen it so many times, well, I saw 10 dead fish. Well, actually, you were going downstream counting them and coming back upstream counting them again. So the day I got my big count, I was driving upstream the whole time, and I only counted upstream. And it was pretty severe. That's when that's when you got my attention in an email was was yeah. that day. But uh, like I said, I mean, we didn't see much real negativity in the in the bite out there. Uh, I will tell you that it ruined my day taking those bigger fish home, so you could have them. <laughs> yeah, but it had to be done. You know, it was interesting. Uh, our supervisor from the pathology lab. Uh, he came up with me to get those and coming up from St. Paul, he asked me, you know, how bring a cooler should I bring? I was like, well, I mean, they are adult Red River channel cats. So big, big coolers. You need to bring large coolers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard any of this. I fully (laughs) understood what that meant. Uh, because we had to stop and make some alternative arrangements in terms of keeping those cold. <laughs> I don't even remember how many I had. I had almost all the Catfish League coolers, though, <laughs> to hold them. <laughs> yeah, you had a couple in your driveway for me, and those fish, they were over 30 inches. Oh, yeah. Um, when he got those down to St. Paul, he tested the sores on them, and he was able to come back uh, – really with inconclusive results is what it boiled down to. He never was able to isolate a given thing. Um, I still kind of lean columnaris, but he cautioned me against that um, because evidently columnaris is a really good virus or excuse me, bacteria um, for secondary infections. So around the edge of that canker sore, you will have something that's causing it. Right. And then columnaris explode on that diseased tissue in the middle there. Um, so he's always a little hesitant to call something columnaris um, just because it might be a secondary bug, if you will. Um, but suffice to say, uh, we had a little bit of a fish health issue. There's not much we can do about it from a management perspective other than record that we did, because if over time we see, start seeing an uptick in this, then that tells us, you know, there might be something environmentally going on that we need to account for. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've seen it twice now in 15 years. So I think that's yeah. not the end of the world if it's two times in 15 years. And one good no, flood, it seems like really... the population's even right back out again. So that's just one guy's observation. Yeah. And in a really dense population, you're going to have disease outbreaks. I mean, that's just kind of part of how this goes. So... Well, I'm going to jump in here with a couple of quick commercials, and we we still got a lot to discuss. We might have a long show tonight, it looks like. (laughs) Everyone with a car or truck will need a repair at one time or another. May I recommend Thunder Ray's Auto Repair in Grand Forks? Ray is a friend of this show and catfishing, and when he started his own shop, I knew he would do great. Just drive by that shop on North Washington. It's always full of cars, and that tells me that they're good at what they do. Our family's taken all of our service to Ray since he opened his shop. Ray's fixes all makes and models. Besides fixing your car or truck, 
They can mount tires, any tire you want. They can also fix, rotate, and balance your tires as needed. From my personal experience, raise even packs and replace trailer bearings on my boat trailers. Oil changes, tire changes, brakes, starters, alternators, electrical, any other thing you can imagine to keep your car on the road, Raze can do it. And oh yeah, they can even help restore your muscle car. If you want fast, honest service, think Raze. Thunder Raze on North Washington and Grand Forks. For more information or to make your appointment, go to thunderraze.com. Brothers Firearms, located right across the hall from Grand Fork's best source in the Grand Cities Mall. They buy, sell, and trade new and used firearms. Brothers has got you covered. Check out this video behind me. Is that not something? Tons of firearms, silencers, all the way to flamethrowers, and that's what you're seeing behind me. Brothers Firearms is veteran-owned. Checked out Brothers Firearms in the Grand Cities Mall in Grand Forks. Open Monday through Friday from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. and Saturdays noon to 4. Brothers Firearms protecting America since 2015. BrothersFirearmsShop.com Already, now that we talked about your extra project, <laughs> is there any other extras pop up on you this summer? Uh, thankfully, no. Um, the one that did pop up on us was uh, the railway. Suddenly, after, oh, probably 20 years, a trip to the attorney's, attorney general's office and untold amounts of bureaucratic shuffling, decided that, you know, we're going to help you guys remove a dam. We'd like to see it gone. And huge shout out to the Buffalo Red River Watershed District and their staff for helping us on the Buffalo River. Uh, that's going to be a big one that's going to allow for more of our fish to move up into the south branch of the Buffalo and bring some better fishing to people up there. So that was awfully exciting. Good. Um, I want to go back to the survey, and I know this isn't done yet, but I want to mention that Game and Fish in North Dakota did a creel survey, and I know that's not out yet, but I'm just kind of curious if you have any thoughts on what we might see with that when it comes out. I mean, without really knowing, unless you've got yeah. some insider information. Got a little bit for you. The first thing we're probably going to see is that fishing pressure is down. Uh, the interesting thing about the Red River, regardless of how good the fishing is, how great of a fishery it is for whatever reason we do not see the popularity of this river climbing and that just puzzles the heck out of me i don't know why it is um i would suspect it has something to do with just kind of people's preferences around here if we were further south I would assume there'd be so many boats on there we couldn't get another one across the river. Well, we don't necessarily want that either. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, that uh, that would be my prediction is we're probably going to see that fishing pressure was down again. I find that hard to believe just going back through my career of guiding and being at the ramps every day. It seems to me that the ramps have never been busier in Grand Forks. Now, Drayton got held up for forever and ever and ever in that mud hole, and I can understand why that probably would be. And I just, I have nothing with the Pembina and really the Wapaton area because I'm just not there. But I would say yeah. here, 
you're seeing more pressure in this stretch. And maybe the Creel survey will will do some something say something different, but just looking at terms of traffic and boat accesses, I would say we're up. Yeah, and you know, uh a big part of that creel is it's not only the boat, uh, it's also shore anglers. So we might see a little increase in terms of our uh, boat angler pressure, but shore angler is probably going to hold steady or maybe go down a little bit. But I don't know. This is all speculative. Once the numbers come out, then we'll have something firm to dig into. I'd be curious to see 2010 to 2015 to 22 because 2010 was a super wet year as well. And uh, I'm pretty good friends with the guy that was the creel clerk that year. So uh, he spent a lot of lonely days at various visiting (laughs) points in 2010. So, you know, don't forget 2010 to 15 to 22 when you're looking at that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, one thing that uh, we had talked about a little bit before we got on here, you know, the catch rate in the 2015 creel was 0.44 fish per hour. So if you can beat that, you're beating the average. Uh, The Minnesota River Creel just got their preliminary data processed. And looking at catfish catch rate down there, we're looking at 0.12 per hour. So that's uh, basically four hours to a fish down on the Minnesota River. Yeah. Generally speaking, we do a little bit better. Now, I, I broke two per hour for the season this year. I've never done that before other than one specific year. Yeah. And I already told so, you about that one. And I don't talk about those numbers because I know that it was a fluke. <laughs> gotcha. It happens from time to time. I've seen it. Um, I've just never seen it last that long. But, I mean, I will say there's times when the Drayton stretch in particular, you can get into that 12 to 18 (laughs) fish per hour if you have just a tiny bit of knowledge. So that being said, I did that nice little segue. Why don't you talk about that Drayton Dam now? (laughs) You bet. Okay, so this one, this is another one of those long-awaited projects. We talked about this at length last year, so this is one of the big updates. We did. And, you know, when we started the uh, reconnecting the red program back in 1998 with the Midtown Fargo Dam, the goal was to get all of the main stem dams reopened. Now, that's for a whole variety of reasons, whether it's for our native species that we're starting to see a little bit of more of a push in Minnesota for DNR to actively manage those. Uh, whether it's for lake sturgeon restoration, which we've talked about before, and that involves both Minnesota, the Dakotas, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Canadians. And then also, it is very important, to my mind, uh, for our channel catfish population. Now, the reason for that is when we look at the telemetry data, so those fish tracking studies that were done, uh, we know that in years with higher sustained flow, about nine and a half to 10% of our channel catfish that are over 24 inches 
uh, in the true lower river, so down below Selkirk, about 10% of those fish move upstream of St. Andrew's Lock and Dam. 6% are going to head all the way upstream into the U.S. Now, we know that in those high flow years, those fish can redistribute throughout U.S. waters because Drayton isn't a barrier. Uh, it's underwater at that point. In those low flow years, though, it is a barrier, not only to those trophy fish that are trying to distribute through the U.S. reach, but to everything else. So when we're talking about fish passage projects, we're thinking about it in benefits to the channel catfish population, because if they're trying to move, there's probably a reason for it. To our sturgeon restoration, we know that dams were one of the principal ways that those went extinct in the Red River Basin. We're now bringing those back. And for all of our other species, uh, and that includes a lot of our native mussel species, actually. Someday, not on this show, I'm going to ask you about mussels and how they move around and do their thing. But we're just skip it for now because we're <laughs> we're on we're on the dams and the fish that most people understand. So, <laughs> yeah, you bet. And we can talk about that at length. Mussels are some of the best fishermen known to man. Well, I'd like to learn more because I've been watching a couple shows on them lately, and I have questions. But let's let's save that for another day. Yeah, you bet. So the Drayton Dam. I'm just gonna. Yep. The, it looks like the main part of the dam's in, and looks like they're ready to start setting rocks. I know they were going to bust yeah. out the old dam here not too long ago, but decided to wait. Yeah. So that's in, the, that's uh, in the full force. The contractor on that project uh, realized that they needed to reevaluate some of the equipment that they had chosen to use um, because some of the rock that is necessary um, is about a five or a six-foot diameter boulder. And that has a significant weight to it. Uh, so you need pretty significant equipment to move it. Um, for example, when they were moving similar rock uh, in Grand Forks, they were using a drag line uh, to get them out and placed. So that contractor is uh, kind of circling the wagons a little bit there. Shopping uh, is what you're saying. Situation. Doing a little What's shop. That? Doing a little shopping. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Uh, the Corps of Engineers is handling that, handling that part, thankfully. Um, but they're hopefully going to recommence next summer. And what you'll see on site right now uh, is the crest for the new uh, fishway. And that will then slope all the way down to the current dam site. Uh, and the current concrete wall will be taken out. Yep, I've uh, I actually been up and looked at it in person here. Early November, we stopped and took a peek. Yeah, was that the day you and Dokken stopped by? Yep, yep. We zipped in there and took a couple pictures and checked it out. Gotcha. Yeah, so that uh, that hopefully should be done uh, by next fall. That's the current timeline. I was there the day they put that yellow fence across. Okay. And the bite changed in about three minutes when that thing went through. <laughs> <laughs> because of the sediment fence? They, I don't know what they did, but my bite shut off in about three minutes when they pulled that thing through. I watched them do it, and 
We yeah. went from a pretty stable bite to no bite in very quick order. And it changed That's the current at, it changed the current at the boat ramp, so I almost crashed getting back on the trailer because that way that current swings through there, you know, those of us who are there a fair amount know how to load uh, creatively, so to speak. But, yeah. uh, you know, I went back a couple different times after it was in, and it didn't seem to affect anything. But the day they pulled it across, it, it did make a difference. Yeah, I just know I don't want to be there when they break that dam out. Yeah, that's going to be a very significant uh, pneumatic hammer job. I'd like Um, to watch it. I just don't want to be fishing down there. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the vibration is fairly significant. So, So, well, let me tell you a little story. I was up in Selkirk when they were redoing the floodway and tearing out the old floodway to widen it to make it what it is now. And we had been up there, and the bite was really, really good. And I think it was the third night, right before dark, we hear like an air raid siren. And we hear thump, thump, thump. Well, they blew up part of the old dam on that. Yep. We went from a good bite to no bite instantly. And we had to drive four miles downstream to find fish instantly. It was that quick how that vibration shut that down. And then the next morning we were out, they were right back up where they were. And we heard the siren. We just reeled up. We didn't even wait for it. We just reeled <laughs> up because we were knew we were done in that section and then took off downstream. Yeah. So vibration does mean a lot. The tributaries and they've been doing bridge maintenance. And the minute one of those pile drivers strikes, it's over. Yeah, so vibration does mean a lot to them. But I remember that was many, many years ago. I don't remember what year that was. They redid that floodway. But, yeah, the day they take out that dam, I don't want to be anywhere close to it as far as fishing goes. <laughs> yeah, so let's put a, let's put the biologist hat on the shelf for a minute and journey into the angling lore area. Okay, sounds fun. So we just established that, you know, both of us have had experiences where vibration will shut off a catfish bite of some kind. Do you put any stock in the theory that people dropping things in the boat or moving around making noise, because most of us have aluminum boats out on the river, that that has any bearing on the fishing? No. No, because I've had people making so much noise for so many years that I would never catch a fish. And I'm the guy who pulls up to the spot, grabs the anchor, and throws it as hard as I can. And my theory of that is there's always trees crashing in. There's always something crashing around. They don't know it's a chunk of steel going to the bottom attached to my boat. And, I mean, I'm can maybe get into it with flatheads because they're so sensitive to vibration and sound. But as far as the channel cats go, I've never, never bothered being quiet and it hasn't seemed to make much difference for me. Yeah. So there must be some threshold that once you get above it, you get a certain pressure with that vibration in the water. And now we got trouble. Yeah. Well, I mean, a Dynamite going off 100 yards from the river might send a little more shockwave than my 22-pound Cat River anchor. <laughs> yeah, same thing with a steam-powered pile driver. So exactly. So, so there you go. <laughs> Keys to good angling. 
no dynamite, no pile drivers. Well, there's a lot of dynamite stories out there, but we'll leave those to our <laughs> game warden friends and your colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. All righty. So uh, that's, uh, that's basically what's going on up in Drayton. Um, anglers this coming year should not expect any significant um, impact to them being able to use that ramp, get on or off. Uh, that has from day one been something that we've told the Corps of Engineers that, you know, this is a popular spot. We don't want folks to be impacted. About the only thing I can think of that you're going to want to be a little careful of uh, is when folks park up by the fish cleaning station. You know, if they're hauling heavy material, there's going to be pretty well loaded semis coming through. Well, they're there. coming down the Just, backside, aren't they? Don't they have a tra- they have a trail down the backside through the trees? Don't they? Oh, they do now. Well, okay, it gotcha. looked like That's they did. Fine. I didn't drive on it, but it appeared they had been hauling stuff down the backside and not down the main driveway. Well, that's fantastic because that was a major point of... I could uh, be wrong, but I know they've got the access road built in there from the boat ramp, but it appeared like they had a trail coming around the backside. And again, I didn't follow it to double check it, so I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, I'll have to talk to the Corps about that. Thank you. That's a good tidbit. I guess I'm not, you know, like I said, I'm not 100% sure, but it appeared that that's how they had been hauling was through the back. Interesting. All right. Well, I learned something today because when I'd seen them, they were going the other way. That's well, good. To know. I haven't actually seen them haul a rock yet. I just saw the <laughs> trails that appear to have had things hauled on them. Gotcha. Fair enough. Well, that's uh, that's basically Drayton. So let's see. Did we we were going to talk about genetics? Did we cover that yet? No, we haven't. Okay, let's jump up to um, that again. Yeah, that was another one that we had talked about a little bit uh, last year, and I was awful excited about this because with a lot of the telemetry work that's been done, we knew that there was fish moving from Canada into the U.S. fairly freely. Uh, We knew that they were making some big moves, Um, but there was this business of Folks being able to look and say, you know, I'm pretty sure that's a Canadian fish and that's an American fish. That'd be me. (laughs) I did that all the time. Yeah, and just based on the morphometry of that fish, the way it looks. And so there was the idea of, well, is there some sort of structuring going on where we have a Canadian population and an American population? Or is this uh, a case of what we call phenotypic plasticity, where the environment in which you are living, you have the genetic ability to adapt to that environment uh, just in your development? Uh, So we explicitly tested it. Uh, We took genetic samples from fish from Wapaton to the Canadian border And we had the Canadians take genetic samples from north of uh, St. Andrew's Dam for us. And what we found was somewhat what we thought we would. Uh, We see a little bit of what we call isolation by distance. And that's where you have fish that were sampled in one area, have a higher likelihood of being related to those fish than fish from much further away. And that just stands to basic reason. But overall, we do not see any strong genetic discrimination 
uh, within the catfish fishery of the Red River, which is really good news for this connectivity program because that means our cats are able to freely traverse up and down the river. They are able to keep that genetic mixing going. And this is just kind of one of the attributes that you expect to find in an unimpeded river system. So it's really good that we found that. So it basically proves me right that the ones that yep. grew up in the lake weren't fighting the current and the ones that are down here their whole life that look more athletic and thinner were just dealing with current every day. Correct. So there you have it. Brad Durek, prophet of phenotypic <laughs> plasticity. Well, you look at enough of them, you start putting two and two together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then and the guys know, like you is... swoop in and prove me right. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't it feel good, Brad? Once in a while. This is the point where sometimes I'd say the sun shines on the dog's ass once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Dale's laughing over here. And instead, we'll talk about soccer, right? Yeah, let's go down and talk about... You know what? Let's skip. I want to skip one because I really want to get this in there and because okay. I was part of it. I want to skip down to the Freshwater Drum Project because I was part of it last year. And I know we touched Perfect. on some of it and more has probably come out. Yeah. Give me one second here. I'm going to pull up something. So the take home on our drum is we have a very healthy drum population that is surprisingly old. Uh, we have freshwater drum that are anywhere from three or four years old all the way out to 60 years old. And what's super unique about that population is just how little anybody knew about freshwater drum. Uh, we, in visiting with Canadian colleagues, had a lot of folks beginning to fish up there. And these are what the Canadians would term first Canadians or new Canadians, excuse me. And so that's going to be recent immigrants. And what they were doing is deliberately targeting fish that had no regulations on them. And they did that because they didn't want to have uh, any run-ins with law enforcement. So kind of out of respect for the regulations, they were going for stuff that was totally unregulated. And okay, you know, fair enough. But then the question needs to be asked, you know, can they sustain the level of harvest that's being put on them? Hence, the drum project. And what we've found is that our drum age structure is fairly indicative of an unexploited fishery. So we see a lot of drum down in those lower age classes, but then we see also a fairly large number out into 20, 30, 40 years old. So right now that exploitation has not had any impact on the drum whatsoever. Uh, we also see evident of con evidence of consistent drum recruitment. Uh, they are throwing year classes very regularly. Uh, we see a lot of age one drums in our sampling. And we also see that within uh, their growth in the Red River, 
uh, they tend to plateau out right around uh, 420 millimeters. Now, Speak English I'm a now. Bit metric- What's that? Speak English. <laughs> yeah. Um, give me a second. I'm going to have to fire up the Google here because my uh, metric conversion in my head is not so good. Um, so that's going to be about 16, 17 inches. Yep. That's about what we see typically. Yeah. So then that's just going to be a drum that's anywhere from 10 years old to 40 years old. So I don't recall exactly how deep we went into that when we talked last year. I don't think any of the data was back yet when we talked last year, was it? No, not a whole lot. So one of the things uh, that I, one of the fish I caught was 58 years old. I do know that much. <laughs> and yep. one of the things that I observed last year when I was collecting for you guys mostly up in the Drayton stretch, was in the evening they would get so loud drumming that they would shut the catfish off. And going back, when the first part of the study came out that was shared with me, there was a lot of 17- and 18-year-old fish that came back, and I distinctly remember that happening in 2003 and 2004, where they would get that loud that and it was a you know the graph I saw had a big spike on those two year classes. So one of the things I told you, I don't remember if it was on the show or one of the times we visited, was I'm glad no, you're we young. About this, huh? What we talked it? about this on the show. We did. Well, one of the things is I'm glad you're young enough, and I hope you stick around long enough that we can start putting two and two together down the road on what I saw in 2021, and if I ever catch it again, of course, I'll be writing it down because that's what I do. And, you know, it'll be curious to see if you get bigger year classes when when you're actually hearing them like that during their spawning season. Yeah, and, you know, we should probably clarify for your viewers that hearing them is kind of an odd experience. It's weird. It, it's it sound- something you know you're hearing but you can't quite isolate why and what you're hearing. I always put it to like a a rope just vaguely bouncing on the aluminum of your boat. That's, and it's just kind of that low dull buzz. But once you know what it is and when it's going like it was last year, it's just deafening. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, because we found a ton of those age ones, um, and those 2021. Fish, <laughs> yep, they uh, they may have been those uh, produced, but you know we just don't know what annual production of freshwater drum looks like in the red. Uh, so going forward, that'll be something hopefully that we're able to monitor again, uh, just to kind of get a better handle on what is an understudied species. It's it's been fun to watch. I mean, I still don't, I still can't bring myself to eat a drum, and <laughs> the uh, I don't like taking the. Once I knew how old they are, I don't like taking the rocks out, even for you guys, because I just don't like the idea of whacking a sixty year old fish. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that if you think about how many natural mortality takes on a given year. The number that science takes is a lot smaller, and boy, we get a lot more information out of them. Um, and, you know, 
folks have expressed that to us before, you know, man, it looks like you guys kill a lot of fish for these surveys. It's like, well, yeah, when they're all sitting here in front of us, yeah, it looks like a lot. But when you do the math on a population estimate for how many are in the lake and then how many would naturally die on a given year, this is really a drop in the bucket. And here's all the data we get. I agree. I mean, I've gotten grief because sometimes the boundary battle falls during a spawn. And, no, you know, sure. well, I, you know, do you realize how much damage you're doing to those fish? I said, well, you got to remember that we're fishing 35 miles of a 435 mile, 545 mile river. So in the grand scheme, we're not doing that much damage to the total picture. Yeah. And, you know, it would be real tough to even quantify damage done locally, given that really high biomass of fish we talked about earlier. Right. So, I mean, if that was happening every week in every stretch of the river, probably be much more concerning. And like you said, you're sitting in a very small piece of a 545 mile river and it looks like Mm -hmm. a lot when really it isn't. Yeah. So how many drum did you get in those traps? Oh, let's see here. I was just looking um, To get you an exact number, it's going to take me just a second here, but I do want to give you the exact number. Uh, we did 450. In our, up here or in the total? Red uh, River, in the total. In the total Red River survey, so. Yep, every single one that we captured, we sampled and then added it to the 40 that I brought in, which was a small, teeny-weeny little amount in comparison. But, you know, it's interesting because what it allows us to do is look at, okay, if you sample scientifically, here's the size classes, size structure that you're going to find, versus if you do this purely using angler-donated fish, here's what you're going to find. And you do see a pretty severe divergence in that um, just based on gear bias. Because guys fishing for catfish, they're going to catch a different size of drum than a net is. Right. You're not going to get a two-year-old drum on a a seven-odd hook. You're just not. Exactly. And that's always one of the real hazards of trying to use fish that are donated from anglers is you're going to miss, by and large, all of those younger size class or younger age classes, not younger size classes, goodness. And that's going to skew your interpretation of those, those data. Right. So the, the freshwater drummer looking good. And I'm going to step into, because we're in the North country. We also know the walleye population seem to be looking pretty good. Yeah. Um, and you know, this is actually fairly important to the red river because if we look a little further North, Um, there's some pretty significant conversations going on within the Canadian government about the Lake Winnipeg walleye and sauger fishery uh, and the commercial take there. Mm -hmm. That's ongoing. What's that? That's ongoing. Yeah. So we want to keep a pretty close eye on what's going on on the American side with those two species in particular. And catch rates uh, within our sauger were good compared to previous surveys. That's outstanding to see, as well as a real nice balanced age distribution uh, of those sauger. We have a lot of our 
fish within that age three, four, five, and six-year-old uh, age class, which is indicative, again, of nice, stable recruitment. We love to see that as fish managers. Uh, if we go over to the walleye population, we see a pretty good slug age threes starting to come through. Um, and those would be the ones that, you know, in visiting with you and Dokken, um, I'm pretty sure those were the fish you guys were seeing when you were fishing this fall. Yep, lots and lots of eaters this fall. Yep, so there's a good age class coming through there. And that's typical for a walleye fishery. You're going to have one really good year class that kind of powers things for a few years. And then hopefully you throw another one. So you're um, saying the graph on the walleyes isn't as pretty as the catfish. No, <laughs> no. Uh, but, you know, it's much more typical of a walleye population. Right. And you explained that before. Species. So we got to, yep. us cat guys got to take good, good, the good when we see it. You know, the graph is perfect. We're going to jump on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> uh, so I know your sturgeon is your thing. So let's talk about sturgeon before we shut it off for the evening. Um, the Still reintroduction sturgeon. project of Lake Sturgeon. And that goes right hand in hand with the Drayton Dam and some of those other dams. And I'm hearing more and more people catching them. So obviously you guys must be seeing more and more of it. Yeah. You know, if you want a really fascinating uh, look at how the sturgeon fishery is doing, just go on to uh, Manitoba's website for their master angler submissions. And what you'll find is the Red River Lake Sturgeon submissions uh, have been steadily climbing uh, in recent years. And I believe those have to be about a 44-inch fish or somewhere in there uh, to qualify. And there's a lot of them being caught uh, within the Red River up in those reaches. We're hearing a lot of people... Uh, catching them in the Grand Forks area, the Fargo area, um, in the Wapaton area, there's a little bit of a developing fishery. And then, of course, up in Lakes Country, um, up in kind of the Otter Tail Country, Detroit Lake, that area. So on the fishing side, things are going pretty good. Guys are learning how to target them. Uh, those fish are getting bigger uh, and of interesting sizes to target. Um, the current kind of queen of the river, as it were, uh, is a 72-incher that we sampled up in Detroit Lake uh, this year. So she's the biggest since the reintroduction program began. And we had some really exciting news uh, this past spring. Um, for the first time since we started reintroducing these fish, uh, you know, we started in 1997-98, but we really started stocking in 2002. Uh, for the first time since all of that, we had a documented attempt uh, at natural reproduction, a verified spawning event uh, in what we're just terming the Otter Tail River, uh, just to protect those fish and their spawning area. So... Good things all around for the sturgeon, and I suppose I might actually catch one if I put a worm on instead of a big chunk of sucker or gold eye. <laughs> well, and at a bare minimum, maybe you'll catch one and they won't jump into your boat. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really the only one I've ever had in my boat, and that already goes back to uh, 2012 when that happens, so that's... <laughs> Few and far between for me, but like you know, I always run heavy tackle. I always hear that people catching them are, you know, they're walleye fishing with worms or a, a you know, basically mm -hmm. a catfish rig 
with a worm on it for whatever they can catch. They seem to be the ones that are getting the most of them. And, you know, I'm just not setting up and targeting them at all. Yeah. And, you know, you hear about that, but we also have a group of guys that are now starting to schedule their trips uh, so they can get in on those fish kind of moving in the spring right after that catch and release season ends or the catch and release season opens rather. Yeah. And you know, a year like 2021 with the cold water, with the ice off early, that would have been the time to be out there. Yeah. So 2022, not uh, so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 2022, you would have struggled to find a boat ramp at that time of year. Well, one of them was actually in perfect shape, but closed and you probably would have went to prison if you tried to use it. (laughs) So again, awesome. We're probably going to end up having you back next season because I mean, we can go right down this list one more time. I'm sure the creel surveys are really going to be interesting. And I'm sure when you get them, you'll be calling me because I really want to know. I still have all the cards so they can be isolated out if they need to be, just because I wanted to know. I should have wrote down the day's number on each card so I could actually know what we caught that day instead of just typing it in and forgetting about it. But win some, you lose some, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, we learned a little bit from that survey, uh, some things that we're going to improve on next time. Uh, But overall you know, that was a real success for us. Uh, We did get our completed trip interviews, which were kind of the gold standard of Creel data. We got that number up as opposed to partial trips. So thank you uh, both to you and everybody else who participated, uh, especially with those uh, online option cards. Uh, That was really appreciated on our end. That was really easy. You know, you just click the... The QR code and boom, 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 and you're through. Yeah. And, you know, our intent was that it would be really fast. And did you find that that's how it worked out? The first one, not so much. But, you know, that was just because I'd never seen it. And then it was, you know, seconds. It was not a big deal. I mean, I knew where my QR reader was. That was problem number one with the first one was I didn't even know where that was. And then... You know, you've never seen the survey before, and it went through. So, yeah, the first one took a little bit of time, but they were literally seconds after that. So I thought it was a real a real cool system. Um, you know, having that every day would be kind of fun to just drop my own data into a database. But um, I still <laughs> drop, write it into the calendar at the end of the day. And you've already seen my data for 2022. Yep. And you had a pretty good catch rate for this year. It was a good year. It was a steady year. Uh, it was uh, very cre- – so there was some creative patterning in there, but it was a very steady year. I mean, it wasn't the best year numbers-wise, but it was a very steady year. Um, we were getting – well, we were hair over two fish per hour, which is outstanding. I always want to be there. I always tell people I'm usually around a fish and a half when you average it out. But even taking out the three best days and the three worst days, I still got over two. And I'm happy with that. And I think we, you know, if you take out that first week and a half when you guys were surveying up here, I believe we only did not break 15 pounds one other time. Yeah. So, I mean, lots of big fish moved in, lots of happy clients, and that's, you know, kind of what you're looking for. 
You're, you're never going to hit the home run every day in this business, ever. No. And, you know, I'm glad that folks had a nice year, especially after kind of the tougher drought years ahead of that. Um, it was just good to see a lot of people using the river and having a good time. I think the traffic says it all. But I want to thank you for coming back. Anything big in the plans for 2023 on the river that we should talk about? Yeah. Um, so coming up uh, this spring, we are kicking off a major sturgeon tracking project. Um, Mark Pegg at University of Nebraska-Lincoln uh, has brought on a graduate student uh, who's going to be working with us. And we are going to be looking expressly at uh, lake sturgeon movement. And part of the reason there is, you know, if we're ever going to someday have a harvest season on those, we need to get a standard monitoring program up and running. So we need to know when they're moving, where they're moving, and the best places to monitor. Uh, we're also going to be looking uh, at Big Mouth Buffalo some more, um, just for some of the unique uh reasons there with their lifespan, with kind of how they're doing in the Red River Basin, especially with the impact of dams on them. And we're also going to be looking at drum movement. Uh, you know, these have a reputation as being some of the most mobile fish in North America, which probably explains why you can find them from the Yucatan all the way up into northern Canada. They're one of the most successful fish out there. So we're going to try and learn a little bit more about those so we can manage them better. That's all exciting stuff. You know, uh, for us who have been, you know, catfish and kind of that rough fish anyway, I mean, that's exciting stuff. Um, nothing about a walleye. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of them. Yeah. Uh, so, well, I want to thank you for being on once again, wrapping this up. Uh, we're uh, always fun to get the lowdown on what's going on. I mean, we've had more information on this river come out in the past two years, just bringing you on this show for people to digest that. I think that's really key for the people who've been around a long time and the new people coming up to know that someone actually cares. Yeah. And you know, if you ever get feedback on this, someone wants to hear a little more on a particular topic. Someone wants to dig into the math a little bit, you know, Let's go ahead and do that. Let's take them to school, you know. It would be fun for you guys as anglers to understand what we over in the management world find so unique about the red. Well, viewers, if this is something you want, we got some open shows down towards the end of the season. You never know. We might have our first guest on two times in the same year. <laughs> <laughs> Warning, there will be math. Well, you're going to do the talking and Dale's going to push the buttons and <laughs> that's how it's going to be. <laughs> I'll host the show and run the ads and we'll do it like that. So Nick, thanks a lot for coming on. Stay on the air. I'll visit with you in just a couple of minutes. You bet. Everyone in catfishing knows that fresh bait is the key to better success. Keep your bait fresh and alive longer with chiller bait tanks. Chiller bait tanks are the only fully insulated, roto-molded tank on the market, making them the most durable tank on the market. Chiller bait tanks offer a patent-pending operating system for controlling the gases in marine storage tanks. Our tank features off-chamber aeration. What is off-chamber aeration, and why is this important? Air is comprised of 78% 
nitrogen and 21% oxygen. We focus on the 21% oxygen, moving it into our pump bay, confining the bubble agitation. This is pumped throughout the tank. Available in 30 and 45-gallon models, both come with free shipping. Each tank includes a three-stage quick-change filter and customizable power cord. Chiller bait tanks are compact and durable, give you many years of worry-free bait keeping. For more information or to buy your last bait tank, check them out on the web with chillerbaittank.com. To reminder, all of our Season 3 sponsors, we have Half Brothers Brewing Company, who presents this show every week. Thunder Rays Auto Repair, Brothers Firearms, Muskox Snowblowers, and Chiller Bait Tanks. Between now and next week, be sure to check out Grand Fork's Best Source and all their list of shows at gfbestsource.com. If you'd like to go back and hear old versions and shows from Catfish Best Source, go to redrivercatfish.com, click on the podcast button. Don't forget to go to our Facebook page, click on the Super Clean, and type in keyword catfish in the comments to have your chance at winning a pack from the super clean people. This stuff will clean your boats, shoes, everything else. You did. I should bring in some of the pictures and have Dale put them up that I've cleaned with this stuff. In between now and then, if you have any interest in a catfish trip with me, look us up on the web, redrivercatfish.com, Facebook under Brad Durick Outdoors, or Instagram at Brad Durick. Until next week, we'll see you again. Thanks for being here.